This is a Checkable Health podcast where we create health content information for moms of school-age children so they can thrive in motherhood and in health. Hello, my name is Patty Post. I'm your host. I'm a mother of 19 years. I've been married for 20 years, and I am founder and CEO of Checkable a healthcare company that is developing the first at-home strep test with a line of supplements available on our website, checkablehealth.com. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is a third part of our digital series. And today we have Dr. Kadaris. Dr. Kadaris is an Ivy League trained psychologist. Uh, He is an entrepreneur. He has started his own practices and has since exited them. He is also an author of Glow Kids, a best-selling New York Times best-selling list book about our kids and the digital addiction. And his latest book, which launches today, September 13th, is Digital Madness. He wrote Digital Madness because he has seen that our country is in a health crisis and it's due to social media. And that's exactly what we are going to talk about today. We're going to talk about uh, the symptoms of this digital madness. We're going to talk about the scrolling and the entertainment and the information that we are taking in as parents, but more importantly, the information that our kids are taking in digitally and on social media and how it's affecting them psychologically and how it isn't just short-term damage, but this is long-term damage. We also talk about the ways that we can thrive. What are the ways that we can stay active? What are the things that are most important to us as humans that keep us connected and allow us to grow and be better? Dr. K gives us a lot of insight on his expertise as well and what he has seen in the evolution of social media in the last 10 years. And for me, it was very eye-opening. And since the interview with Bark Technologies, I definitely have parented differently when it comes to digitally. Example that I like to use is no phones in the room after nine o'clock. Nine o'clock time, shut it down. You don't need to be on your phone until hours of the night and you can find better things to do. But also on a personal side, from recognizing the scroll that I have and the entertainment that when I post something and feeling that urge to check back and the things that I have done to eliminate that, such as removing the social media app from my home screen and burying it back in a folder in the, the one of the last screens of my phone has really helped me in the last couple of weeks. Uh, remind you that we do have a couple of other episodes. We have Bark Technologies, the episode before this. And then we have Dr. Price, who is talking about our sons and our daughters and the development of a teenager and how we can relate to them and better understand them. Thank you, Dr. Kadaris, for joining me. It was an absolute pleasure. And I hope that you, as audience, will really get to some entertainment value out of these stories. But more importantly, I hope that you're impacted as much as I was about Dr. Kadaris' stories and his overall wisdom of how we can change this from a mental health crisis to something that we are dealing with and we know how to progress in as we move forward as parents. So with that, let's get into it with the episode with Dr. Nicholas Kadaris. Dr. Kadaris, thank you so much for joining me today on the Checkable Health Podcast. Thank you for having me as a guest. It's my pleasure to be here. So Dr. Kadaris, I actually found you by Googling and looking, trying to find out how can I be a better parent, a better mom in this digital age. And I found you as an author of your first book, Glow Kids, and you are a clinical psychologist. You've been really everywhere, like Time and all of the major news networks. And looking at that, I really wanted you to come on and share with our audience about Glow Kids. But unbeknownst to me, you have a new book, Digital Madness, 
And so today, that's what we're here to talk about is your new book, Digital Madness. And it is how social media is driving our digital addiction and our mental health crisis. As I said before, it gives me a little bit of a pit in my stomach when I start talking about this. But please, what what does that mean? Why did you have this heavy, heavy title for this uh, for this topic? I, I guess I'm asking a question that's pretty obvious, but please share with us. Well, you know, I think really part of the problem societally was it wasn't that obvious. I think uh, when I first wrote Glow Kids five years ago, I was shocked how underaware not just our society, or I'm a parent also, by the way, you know, so we, I'm in the fight as well. I have 15-year-old twin boys. And, um, and it was just shocking to me that people were not really uh, tuned into the fact that we could get habituated or addicted, whatever word you want to use, to our shiny, amazing devices that we've all fallen in love with. Let's face it, you know, we're, we're a tech-lubricated society. We've all had a tech love affair. And we weren't quite noticing the impact, the clinical impact that it was having on our kids. So, when I wrote Glow Kids, I got a lot of pushback from people in terms of like, is this really a disorder? Can people be tech addicted? And, and that battle has been won, I believe, in terms of it's been that question has been asked and answered because now it is an official diagnosis. And, and I think the clinical community and our society have accepted, yeah, it's a thing. Tech addiction is a thing. Mm-hmm. Some are, are affected more than others, but we're all affected by our, in the years since Glow Kids, we have found out that we're not addicted by accident, right? So documentaries like The Social Dilemma and even Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook, they laid out their playbook. They said, oh, we have used the most evolved and sophisticated behavior modification designs, dopamine reward loops to get you hooked and addicted to our platforms because we're going to monetize your experience. So our kids and we have been the product, right? We've been monetized by big tech. So, so the first book, Glow Kids, was, hey, look, I'm going to show you the clinical research and evidence about how we're addicted to these devices. And now the next book is, what is this addiction leading to? Mm-hmm. So now we're habituated to our devices, but what's the byproduct of that habituation? And what we saw before COVID in 2019, before the pandemic, which really locked us all inside and made us all tech turbocharged on our screens, we had the worst psychiatric metrics in history. We had the highest depression rates, the highest anxiety rates, the highest suicide rates, the highest overdose rates, the highest ADHD rates in recorded history since we were measuring psychiatric metrics. So when you look at the psych statistics, they were going higher and higher every year over the last 10 to 15 to 20 years, which seemed to correlate with our immersion into technology. Mm. And the question that, that begged asking that I try to answer in Digital Madness is, what about our tech love affair is making us more anxious, depressed, suicidal, maybe more vulnerable towards other addictions like substance addiction and overdoses and ADHD and all these other issues. And so what we were finding was that, and, and by the way, in those last 10 to 15 years, we were definitely ramping up uh, pharmaceutical medication Depression right now is the number one chronic debilitating illness, according to the World Health Organization. And yet we've increased our antidepressant medication by 300%, and yet depression rates are still spiking. So my hypothesis has been we're living in a society that breeds depression Mm -hmm. because the two things as a psychologist that I know that that are the antidotes to depression that are non-pharmacological are physical movement, right? We're, we're meant to be physically active. We need to exercise because that activates, releases serotonin and all those good things. We're meant to be physically active because we're a hunter-gatherer species. And we're also meant to have community, mm-hmm. uh, to have close face-to-face relationships. And look at what the digital age has done to us. It's yeah. made us sedentary and isolated. Yes. So, so those two things, I think, are a big part of the equation for why we're a more depressed society. But then as you looked at our psychiatric metrics, it started getting even more interesting and more complex than that. Then you started seeing that there were higher rates of personality disorders, like borderline personality disorder. You started seeing interesting psychiatric outbreaks like Tourette's syndrome in young adolescent females that we'd never really seen before. There was an epidemic of Tourette's disorder that was happening. So we started seeing that social media 
was spreading virally, digitally, or virally, or however you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But in psychology, we have a term called uh, social contagions. And social contagions are things that groups spread or behaviors that are spread by groups. So like smoking mm-hmm. is a social contagion, right? If you hang out with a group of smokers, you're going to eventually smoke. Mm-hmm. Suicide can be a social contagion, can be spread by groups. And there's a lot of research about that. So what we started seeing was that influencers, and there were a handful of influencers. I'll give you just one very specific example of what I'm talking about with TikTok Tourette's, which got a lot of publicity in Rolling Stone and uh, the Wall Street Journal. We started seeing these thousands of teenage adolescent females that were showing signs of Tourette's disorder. They were starting to show signs of it in adolescence. And usually Tourette's disorder is three to one male to female. You don't really see it in females that much. And you definitely don't see it in adolescence. You see it in early childhood. Mm. So their pediatricians thought this was odd. Why are these teenage girls all of a sudden having these jerky arm motions? And they also have what's called corporalalia. Corporalalia is the cursing Tourette's. And when they looked at these teenage girls, they found out that they were all following a handful of influencers who were TikTok influencers with Tourette's syndrome. And they had 2 billion views. So now what was really fascinating, what was really fascinating, one of these TikTok Tourette's influencers was British. And so some of the girls started cursing and repeating the same word that she would say with a British accent. So this was like now they were mimicking, and I don't know if it was conscious, whether it was conscious or unconscious. I've analyzed some of these videos. They were beginning to to now mimic back some of these some of these psychiatric disorders in ways that were really unhealthy. And by the way, when I looked at the influencers, I don't think they had genuine Tourette's disorder either. I think that they were performative. I think they were acting out because let's face it, what's the coin of the realm for social media, right? It's, it's followers, it's right. likes. So, and who gets the most likes? It's the people who act the most over the top, the right. most histrionic. So if you're going to act over the top, you're going to get more followers. The more followers you get, the more over the top you behave. And now the more that you're, because again, we're a social species that models one another because it's called social learning theory. Mm-hmm. So now we've created these digital behaviors that are spreading virally through Social media. So this was happening, by the way, also for dissociative disorder. We used to call that multiple personality disorder. If you go online and look up, uh, there are influencers now who claim to have dissociative disorder. You know, what we used to, as I said, it used to be called multiple personality disorder. And these are totally, you know, if I can be candid, they're not genuine. Yeah, Uh, it's like made up. Well, they're claiming that they have, some of them are claiming to have over 100 identities and, and real authentic personality of dissociative disorder used to be uh, sexual trauma in childhood mm-hmm. led a person to create two or three or four alter alter identities. Remember from the classic movie, Sybil or three faces of Eve, yeah. a person would create three or four identities to protect their true selves from the trauma of the sexual abuse. Uh, typically you didn't have 50, 60, hundred identities. Now you have really popular influencers on social media that are having identities across the LGBTQI spectrum. They're 18-year-old black women. They're 30-year-old white straight men. They're 40-year-old. And it's called the host. The host has dozens of these identities now. Mm-hmm. And, and the performative part, the part that gets them millions of views and followers, is when they do what's called switching. So when they switch identities. And again, I've worked with genuine dissociative disorder. This ain't the real thing. These are performative influencers, but what they're doing is now they have followers who are saying, oh yeah, me too. I've got, I've got alters. I got that. So we've seen that with five or six or seven psychiatric disorders. An extension of that now, now if you get really provocative, school shootings. Yeah. School shooting is a social contagion. You have lost, empty, young, typically men who are feeling a sense of alienation, a sense of emptiness, a sense of no purpose. And now they see a roadmap to identity, a sense of purpose and mission. They see that, and this all started by the way with Columbine. Columbine was the first internet era shooting. Before Columbine, you had the Texas Tower shooting in 1966, where you had one 22-year-old, 24-year-old ex-Marine who went up on the Texas Tower and shot 22 people. Mm -hmm. You had decades of no school shootings, and then you had Columbine, where... 
Klebold and Harris, the two Columbine shooters, mm -hmm. were there 1999, the beginning of the internet era, and now you've had a series of Columbine-influenced, Columbine-shaped, Columbine-inspired school shooters, and the FBI said this as well. So these are some of the more toxic ways that social media can kind of like sink its teeth into people and shape behavior. And of course, I haven't even talked about the eating disorder, the self-image that young girls typically will, their identity being shaped by increasing their eating disorders. You know, we found out that Facebook and Instagram did internal research that showed that eating disorders were increased by 17% when young girls were on Instagram. Um, we, oh you remember when we used to say that the fashion industry used to drive anorexia, right? It was yes. both, it was Kate Moss and it was the fashion industry was driving young girls to have eating disorders. Yep. And I think to some degree that was true because our media can look, it's a shaping influence of our behavior, but think about what the fashion industry was back in the eighties and nineties. It was a static magazine sitting on your end table. Yeah. Right. It wasn't with you all the time. Now it's 24-7. Right. It's always in their face. And they're always comparing. Right. So that's called the comparison effect. So now the comparison effect is going to make you A, more depressed, mm -hmm. because you're never going to be as good as these thousands of other people's external idealized selves, these, these influencers who have these, you know, let's face it, these influencers have talked about curating artificially luxurious lifestyles right. that nobody can compare stack up to. Yeah. And so you're going to feel more depressed. More of my life is pretty crappy. I can't look like these Photoshop people. Now I've got to either Photoshop myself or physically alter myself. So that's a whole other contagion that's spreading about physical body image issues. Um, of course, we have the gender dysphoria epidemic where a thousand percent increase in gender dysphoria. Now I'm a psychologist who's worked with genuine gender dysphoria. It's a thing. Mm -hmm. There are people that genuinely have this issue where they are don't identify to be in their own biological body mm -hmm. and it's always been the thing but, but it's been the thing that's been a very very small percentage of the population right i think social media has made it a popular thing right has made it not just destigmatized not just normalized but now aspirational mm -hmm. to be trans mm -hmm. so and i'm not the first uh, erica anderson is a trans psychologist who said this has gone too far. She mm -hmm. said that with quarantines that increased the dependence on social media through COVID, you have young kids who are now being much more shaped by their social media immersion. Mm -hmm. So more than their families, even because oh, they're spending more time on social media and their families are like, who is this kid? Right. There was research decades ago that showed that mother and father, mom and dad, that unfortunately you and I stopped having the maximum influence on in our kids when they reach about 10 or 12, that it's peer group that begins to kind of shape them more at about 10. Or 12. There was a large study about 30 years ago that looked at that. And, and so we want to think that we're looking, I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's all bets are off after 12 or 13, yeah. but, but that it shifts from, I want to be like mom and I want to be like dad too. I want to be like that cool kid yeah. at about 10 or 12. Mm -hmm. And now the cool kids aren't like the kids in the classroom, the jocks or the, cheerleaders now it's the social media influencers mm -hmm. that are the cool kids oh, man, it's so unfab and they live in different parts of the country right. come from a different socioeconomic status yeah. where it's completely unattainable right so so it's like anything else it's you're trying to adhere or to try to compare yourself to an ideal that's not achievable yeah. so you're always going to feel less thanism mm -hmm. and now if you feel empty and less thanism how do you fill that void so now you have people that begin doing things like cutting and drinking and drugging because they feel that another part that doesn't get talked about enough is every kid, not just every kid, every human being. I'm a, I'm a Jungian psychologist. I also mm -hmm. believe in people profoundly need a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. Yeah. And the digital age has kind of vacuumed out meaning and purpose. Everything has become so shallow and superficial and polarized and vacuous. Who are we at our core? You know, the ancient Greeks used to ask that question. Who am I? What am I? And mm -hmm. there was there would be this moral development that was important and an ethical, you know, the Greeks studied, ancient Greeks studied ethics and mm -hmm. reason. And, and I believe that these are part of the solutions in this ocean of toxicity that we and our children are swimming in. We're not teaching in schools anymore civics, ethics, 
things that I think can act as compasses or life preservers. Critical thinking, uh, by the way, is, is the other piece that's a lost art because, you know, right now the big, you know, on all the news is how polarized we've become as a society, mm-hmm. left and right. And, uh, and one of the things that's really fascinating that I write about in Digital Madness is social media as a medium is shaping the landscape of the way we process information into polarization buckets. Uh, so, so what do I mean by that? Historically, if you used to read a book about something, you read something in its complexity, that everything tended to not be black and white. Things tended to have gray areas and, and everything from politics to history to philosophy tended to have gradations of subtlety and nuance. Mm. But there's no nuance in social media because that doesn't rise above the noise, you know, because as I said before, the loudest people on social media get all the attention, right? So social media has become almost like a, like a living organism that absorbs our most intense emotional extremes and then spits them back to us in an amplified, what's called extremification loop. Mm-hmm. And others have termed this coin of an extremification loop. And so now if I'm a 15 or a 16 year old that's been raised on social media where everything is 140 character Twitter little sound bites, everything is now good or bad, red or blue. Right. Um, and, and what we find is in personality disorders, like borderline personality disorder, one of the main symptoms is black and white thinking. And we've seen a big uh. spike in, in BPD. So my hypothesis is, have we now begun to shape young people to only be able to see things in black and white and be highly, the other symptoms of BPD, borderline personality disorder, is to be highly emotionally dysregulated, highly reactive, like easily triggered, mm-hmm. and look at our society today. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying that I think the societal diagnosis now is borderline personality disorder mm-hmm. fueled by polarizing social media and its algorithms of amplified polarity. It's really toxic. You know, there were yeah. theorists back, like uh, Dr. Postman was uh, a media theorist, an NYU professor back in the 80s that wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he warned about the new digital medium. Marshall McLuhan warned about digital medium. Like, what what is it going to do to our society? And so what we're seeing is we're the sickest that we've ever been mentally. As I said earlier, we're the most psychiatrically unwell. And we're the most polarized and reactive. And so this goes way beyond tech addiction. And that was kind of, that was my thing. You know, yeah, we won the debate that technology is addicting. Mm -hmm. But gosh, what is it, what is it doing to our society and to our brains and to our young and to us, right. all of us, you know? So, so that's what I try to highlight in the new book. Are you looking for ways to de-stress in your day-to-day and help you get into a relaxed state of mind? I know I do, which is why I love ashwagandha from Checkable Wellness. Ashwagandha is an adaptogen And adaptogens have been used for centuries in helping the body adapt and thrive. You can check out CheckableHealth.com to get some for yourself today. So you can say, ah, with the help of ashwagandha. A few things that really stand out to me that you said was activity and community. Two things that, and then the other things of morals, ethics, reasons. In, In my family, we... We just moved to a new community about a year and a half ago, and we were really involved in our old church. And Mm -hmm. now moving, we are getting involved in our new church, but there's not as many uh, teenagers in this church. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that that disconnection of community for my kids, for my boys specifically, was really hard on them. And so what we are really making a point of doing in our own home is having kids around the table, being able to build relationships, to have an adult there as well with the other friends, because having, even as adults, I move into a new neighborhood and like, why don't any of you talk to each other? Don't you do like, come over, sit on my deck. Let's, let's talk Mm -hmm. about life. And if we're always just messaging on our phones and texting and not even picking up the phone to say hello or in person, it feels like we're just losing what is very, it's like the zest of life. Yeah. Oh, I, I think you just hit the nail on the head. And 
my family's moved a lot recently too. We've moved to a couple of different parts of the country with some of the work that I've done. I've opened up a couple of clinics and I said, I've got teenage boys and my wife did exactly what you've done. She really leaned into getting some of their peers over to the house and creating community because you're right, we're a profoundly social species. Mm-hmm. The old saying was the tribe survived. So it's in our psychological DNA to have community. And mm-hmm. if we don't have community, there's a void, there's an emptiness, there's an unwellness that happens. And a digital tribe isn't the same as an in-person tribe. They did a really interesting study on eye contact. Mm -hmm. And they had found that for an interaction, a social interaction to have psychological and emotional resonance, you have to maintain eye contact with somebody, at least 70% of that conversation. Uh And what they found was that young people under 25 were only maintaining eye contact 30% of the time, even when they were face-to-face because of you know, text head, text head and, you know, mm-hmm. the digital has kind of vacuumed out those social skills of eye contact. And eye contact is profoundly important. And as you said, face-to-face peer interaction is really important. We all need to belong to a tribe. We all want mm-hmm. to feel a sense of community. And that's been sort of vacuumed out. I was asked to testify as an expert witness in a really horrible, I don't want to bring down the, the mood here, but there was a really horrible capital murder that happened in Palm Beach County uh, three years ago, and they just went to trial recently. I was an expert witness in this case because it was a YouTube defense. It was Mm -hmm. a young kid, it was a suburban kid in Palm Beach County who had been brainwashed. Essentially, he he was an an outcast in his school. He he looked, if you met him, he looked like a typical skateboarder, surfer, Mm 17-year-old. But he was a bit of an outcast because he was kind of, you know, it was in whatever reasons, he, he wasn't in with the in crowd. Mm-hmm. And so he was very susceptible to digital brainwashing. And so ideologically, he was interested in politics and he went from being a left-wing progressive. So all he would do, by the way, is watch YouTube videos all mm-hmm. the time. And the YouTube algorithm feeds you what it thinks uh-huh. you want, right? Like if you watch a kitty video, you're going to get a thousand. Yeah. But with politics, it amplifies the political noise to a louder degree because it's, it thinks, the algorithm thinks that you're going to lose interest if it doesn't increase the intensity. Right. So he went from progressive liberal to then he watched a random a random uh, YouTube clip about the Holocaust. And because he watched that, the algorithm started sending him Holocaust denying videos and then white supremacy videos. And then pretty soon he went down the rabbit hole of being a white supremacist. But wait, the story doesn't end there. He was a white supremacist for about six months when he was 16 or 17. But then he watched a documentary about Syria and the conflict with Assad. Yeah. And all of a sudden, now he started getting ISIS propaganda videos. And the FBI showed him some of these videos were so polished and high production values and really made ISIS sound appealing for a lost, picked on, empty kid. Mm-hmm. ISIS seemed like a good team to join because they made themselves sound like they were about community and mm-hmm. digging wells and sustainability and all this nonsense because it was all BS. PR. Yeah. But then, but he has eventually converted to Islam and became an ISIS warrior. And then they started sending him decapitation videos because now they were essentially grooming him to be a, a terrorist. And so this white suburban Palm Beach County teenager committed one of the most horrific crimes. He tried to kill four people, decapit- essentially decapitated a 13 year old boy. When I had to meet this kid who was now 18 in prison and I had to do a four-hour assessment. What I said to my wife that really unnerved me was he didn't, and when I met him, by the way, it was two years after the crime because, you know, COVID delayed his, his trial and he'd been in prison without any internet. So he didn't have all of that social media influencing anymore. Now he was mm-hmm. just a kid sitting in maximum security for a couple of years. He was the sweetest, nicest kid. I mean, you never would have suspected like, I, want, I wanted to meet Charles Manson. Mm-hmm. I couldn't because I saw these crime photos and it was nauseatingly shocking yeah. how horrific this crime was. And and so you, I expected to meet a sociopath or a blank-eyed, empty yeah. soul. Right. And what I met was a polite young man who welcomed me, sat me down, soft-spoken. Everybody said that knew him as a kid, that he would never hurt a fly. Yeah. And what I said to my wife when I went back home after doing that evaluation on him, that really terrified me because if this kid could be so brainwashed to commit such a horrific crime, it could happen to anyone. What else I mean, we would have happen? hired we would have hired this kid to be a babysitter. Yeah. He would seem so likable or trustworthy. And if I hadn't yeah. known about the crime, I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so these are some of the, you know, extreme examples. And now it goes, you know, so he's in that realm of political brainwashing, the mass shooters, the kids that can kind of push the envelope to the extreme. But underneath that, there's all our kids. All our kids are getting influenced to some degree. Their values are getting influenced. Their behaviors are getting modified to some degree. You know, maybe not to, of course, that toxic degree. Mm-hmm. But we have to understand that this is really powerful stuff. And it's toxic stuff. You know, so some of our kids are going to be more able to tolerate it than others. What's going to help that? So strong family support. The kid in Palm Beach County had a single mom. He didn't have a father in the home. His mm-hmm. father had died when he was younger. Um, and like you said earlier, physical activity and community, healthy community, mm-hmm. and critical thinking, ethical discernment, civics training, compassion and empathy, leaning into teaching our kids how to use their critical thinking. Because all we hear now is disinformation, misinformation. Yeah. There's so much content flooding our, our children. We have to teach them how to use their God-given abilities to critically think, to mm-hmm. discern fact from fiction, nonsense from reality. And how do you do that? Not by censoring, but by allowing or showing young people how to use their brains. Mm-hmm. What about how to walk away or turn it off because it is mm-hmm. so addicting? Do yeah. you have... That is a fascinating story. I mean, that absolutely tragic, but fascinating that he was back to sort of the foundation of a person that he was with the social Mm -hmm. media removed and that influence removed from his life. So going to the bright side of your book Mm -hmm. and how to help us parents, how do we promote them to put it down or for them to like, let's turn off the knob now and I don't need it anymore. You know, when you get that feeling like, I've been watching TV too long. I need to, yeah. I need to go and turn off, read a book. Yeah. I don't feel like they have that like we do. Yeah. So impulse control, yeah. the ability to, to moderate is a developmental neurological function that happens in our twenties that fully matures in our twenties or early twenties. That's okay. why typically teenagers are the, take the biggest risks. That's why they, you know, do all sorts of wacky, you know, you do things that's, at 14 that you wouldn't do at 44. Yes. I wear a bicycle helmet now when I ride my bike, and I didn't do that when I was 14. <laughs> You're fearless. <laughs> right. So we're able to consequentially think because that part of our brain that does what's called if-then thinking, if I do this, then that'll happen, mm-hmm. doesn't fully form till we're 22, 23. So teenagers are risk takers by, by neurology default, by neurological default. So this... The one main thing that I talk about is to delay, 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 delay the the giving of the digital because digital devices are baked in to be habit forming. Yeah. And so a kid's not able to delay gratification who's five or fifteen. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the older they get, they're beginning to be able to do it better. So that's why a kid who is given a tablet or a Chromebook at age thirteen is better than a three-year-old to be able to delay yeah. gratification. So basically what my message has always been is the more you can delay giving your kids these hyper-arousing, dependency-forming devices, the more you can allow them to develop their own identities and personalities first, mm-hmm. then expose them to technology, the better they'll be able to manage it, balance it, have some impulse control over it. But if you drop that tablet into the crib, mm-hmm. um, that kid is going to be primed for impulsivity. They're going to be shaped in a very toxic way very early on. And all the research shows this, by the way the increased rates of ADHD and higher rates of all sorts of disorders, the earlier you give children technology. So we have to be really, you know, we can't be, I hate to say it because it's really easy to use the digital babysitter, but we have to lean into parenting and and it's so Mm -hmm. easy to drop that, that tablet because we Mm -hmm. know that it quiets the kids, but it's, it's, it's like a short term fix and that creates a longer term problem. So if I delay giving my kid a a smartphone or a device, in the meantime, I'm encouraging them to play sports and do music and stay connected to any kind of organizations like religious organizations like church or or the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts or whatever it may be. It gives them support structures that uh, are foundations that they can hang their identity on and that can fortify them. Otherwise, we have a lot of kids right now who just have no sense of core identity, no sense right. of core values, and they're drifting. And so they're absorbing all this online. Online is shaping them much more disproportionately because they didn't develop it at a younger age internally through their families or their communities. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And they're like a lost soul. 
You know, I, I never say never, you know, but it's a lot more challenging when someone's gone down that highway to kind of reverse course. And some things with neurological development are some things because the neuroplasticity can be rewired mm-hmm. and some things can't. Like there are certain developmental windows, like language is a developmental window. If a child doesn't learn language at that key stage of development, they're never going to learn language. They may learn uh, basic language, but never metaphor, idiomatic speech. They found this with feral kids that were raised in the wild. Mm. But it's the same thing with like attention. If you don't develop your ability to pay attention, to delay gratification at a key stage of your development, you're always going to be impulsive. Mm. You're going to be wired for impulsivity. The, The research shows this pretty clearly. So, you know, we don't really want to raise highly impulsive kids into impulsive adults because impulsivity correlates a lot with drug addiction, a lot of other bad behavioral outcomes that we don't really want to bake into our kids. Mm -hmm. Yep. Then you need your fix. Then you need your fix. To get that dopamine hit. Right. So with everything that you're saying, I said we were doing the series with Dr. Price and then with Bark Technologies and just from the audience, it would be great to listen to, I think specifically Bark Technologies. That's a technology that you can put to your phone and and be aware of what your child is doing and also be alerted Mm -hmm. of things like if it's bullying or they're they're Mm -hmm. using algorithms in a good way Mm -hmm. to identify if things are happening to your child that Mm -hmm. shouldn't be. So I I look at it as like a protection, a digital protection. Um, so just a little plug for that, but from everything that you're saying, it's it comes to the babysitter is not the phone and right. parent nothing will substitute the love of a parent, the watchful eye of a parent, the guidance, and that's what our children need. And your book, uh, so your book is available September 13th. Mm-hmm. And we will give away a copy of your book to uh, an audience member. So when that releases, are you doing a digital book as well or an audio book as well or physical copy? Yeah, there's an ebook and there's also an audio book that uh, there's a, not my voice is a trained actor. That's, that's it's strange to hear your book read by another person's voice. But yeah, <laughs> there, there's an audio book and there's an ebook as well. And it's available on Amazon because you've got to dance with the devil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, world. I've got to use technology sometimes. And then that's the thing. I'm not, you know, I'm not a Luddite in anti-technology. What I am opposed to is, is age inappropriate technology, because yeah. I think we all became so drunk with our technology love affair mm-hmm. that we didn't really fully think through the consequences of giving our two-year-olds a tablet. Mm-hmm. You know, I joke around that you know, I'm waiting for them to have an in utero tablet at some point, you know, right? (laughs) You know what they did? You know what big tech did? It made us insecure as parents that if we didn't Mm. give our kids technology at younger and younger ages, they were going to be behind. Mm -hmm. That was the narrative, right? Mm -hmm. It was, you're going to be a bad parent. If you don't give your kid a tablet, how are they going to succeed in the technological world? And what's so ironic is Sergey Brin and Larry Page, the founders of Google, Mm -hmm. were Montessori students. Uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, Amazon was a Montessori student, mm-hmm. you know, no technology until they were 13 or 14, right. ra- raised with like the most traditional childhoods. And their brains were allowed to develop to be creative and outside the box thinkers. If somebody would have s- dropped a tablet into Sergey Brin's crib, he wouldn't have become the Stanford innovative graduate student that developed the Google algorithm because he had the creativity and the intellectual firepower to get there. But meanwhile, we're like dulling our kids by giving them these like this digital candy that's addicting. And it's yeah. just, and half of these YouTube videos are oh my God, it's like they're so brain numbing. You know, <sighs> our kids are watching. And then my kids, I see my, you know, they're dropping a watermelon from a bridge a thousand times. <laughs> yes. it's like, and I get it. We watched Gilligan's Island when we were growing yeah. up. We, didn't, yeah. we weren't always watching, you know, Nova. And, <laughs> right. So you need a little bit of mush once in a while. But, but that's the thing with YouTube and the modern stuff. It's just constant. You know, right. you could watch it over and over and over again. Yeah. There was only so much Gilligan's Island we could watch before. You know, we couldn't watch it on, right. on repeats over and over again. Yeah, they turned you know. off and then you had to go outside and play or right. go to bed. Exactly. Right, right. <laughs> and I feel like they're not curious anymore about how things are made or why did that happen or what can I learn from that? It's more of that impulse. Like, I want to watch it. I want to be entertained all the time. And you can get a lot of enjoyment out of learning and out of researching and exploring. But I think that that is what I find the most void of my kids' life is that they don't have that. 
you know, you hit the nail on the head. So few people appreciate that creativity piece that you just mentioned, or that curiosity and creativity mm-hmm. piece. That was one of the first things I noticed when I started working with young people and started noticing this tech effect 15 years ago was they were not interesting and not interested. So there was a lack of curiosity. Look, I'll, I'll do a, a confession. You know, when I went to high school uh, and I went to the Bronx High School of mm-hmm. Science in New York, which was kind of a nerd school, but nice. <laughs> and we would cut school to go to the Museum of Natural History. So cool. And, you know, years later, it's like, what? You, and, I, and I was at the cool crew, and we, we couldn't wait to go see the, I mean, the Museum of Natural History in New York was like this amazing place. But we were curious about it. Yes. And because I'm a philosophy student as well, mm-hmm. Plato had said, all philosophy begins in wonder, looking up at the night sky and trying to sort of figure it all out. And and that's what I've noticed. Our kids are now addicted to entertainment mm-hmm. rather than curiosity. Yeah. And that's what Neil Postman wrote about back in 1985 in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, that the visual medium is switching our brains from a reading that requires a dialectical thinking and a curiosity to now he called it digital soma, that it was going to be like Brave New World, like a sedating drug. Mm-hmm. That was just kind of like, and, and so many of our kids were just watching mindless YouTube videos are just mm-hmm. getting, like you said, they're just entertainment numbing. They're not yes. like, oh, isn't this interesting? How does this work? And, yeah. and how, or even po- be politically interested. Be, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've worked with teenagers and I was doing school district work. Mm-hmm. Half of them didn't know who the president was. Half of them didn't know, they didn't know anything, quite honestly. It was almost yeah. like one of these, like uh, Jay Leno, uh, you know, talking to the uh, pedestrians or, yeah. or Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. It was shocking to see how uninformed the average 15 or 16-year-old was. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. You, you, you guys really don't know who the president is or who right. you know. Um, so, or how but, to write a letter. Like, do you know how to put an address on a letter? Like, or write yeah. a check? Or sort of these basic, like, that is the most basic thing ever. Yeah, you don't know how yeah, to do that? Yeah. Like, <laughs> what? Or I heard someone say, actually, this is actually a very funny one. When you look at the weather and you see that it's 20% chance of rain, <laughs> right. they thought it was that 20% of the city would get rain. <laughs> Like, wait, what? Like, how would that even be possible? Don't you think for one second when you think that you're like, well, no, that's not possible because why would it just like, there's not that thinking there. It's, I think there's too much of that. We try not to have that with our kids, but I hope it will get better. It's amazing. Like you said, I mean, never underestimate, but you know, there was the one, there was the one study that was also, my my wife was a, was an elementary school teacher for Mm -hmm. 20 years. And um, and she talked about like each grade that she taught was getting kind of dumbed down and less mm. curious and all the things you just talked about. But the one study she showed me was the one uh, it was a preschool study with blocks and how there were preschool students who couldn't didn't know what to do with blocks. They didn't they couldn't stack them. They didn't you know playing with blocks used to be kind of like you know a, a human rite of passage. You just right. And these kids. And the sad part was the ones that you see where you see some of the kids that are six or 12 months old, some of the infants who are swiping or showing like a picture and they try to swipe it because they've been exposed to tablets. So so these kids didn't know how to stack blocks, but they were what's called phantom swiping. They think, well, let me change my reality by just doing this hand gesture because I've learned on a touch screen that if I swipe something, I can change my reality. So it's so um, disheartening. But but the good news is I am seeing a grassroots awareness from a lot of parents now who are waking up that mm-hmm. look, this is not just, I can't just give unfettered screen time to my kids from mm-hmm. the time they're born to, I've got to be more cautious. So creating tech cautious parenting is critical. And, mm-hmm. and now I'm seeing a lot of more parents who are, because again, five years ago, most people weren't tuned into this idea. They were just under aware that this could be a problem. They just thought that these were smaller television sets. And most of us grew up on television. And, and I think people were just not appreciating that these were not just television sets that were smaller and more portable. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they're more impactful in our development is because they're interactive and immersive. And so interactive and immersive screens are much more impactful than when you were growing up or I was growing up watching television. The TV was you were a passive viewer from a phenomenon that was happening 10 or 15 feet away from you. Mm-hmm. You weren't in it. Right. The, in it makes it much more powerful and mm-hmm. much more 
psychodynamically impactful. So, so these are the things that people weren't appreciative of, I think, till now. They're saying, oh, my God, look, look at what's happened to this generation that we're, yes. we're raising. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is scary. Your title and, and the subtitle of the mental health crisis that social media is creating, you're absolutely right. The number of things that you touched on as you were going from one thing to the next, I was thinking, is there anything else in the world that has been this dramatic and has really, I mean, it's a critical critical crisis in society that- Yeah, social media has swallowed up society, right? Yes. I mean, like yeah. it is, and you know, the Kardashians are more influential on your daughter than you are, mm-hmm. you know, uh, fortunately. And, and all these, it's, it's just, it's just incredible. And we always had, and I, I write in digital madness that we always had influencers, right? Our influencers used to be our athletes and our movie stars and Michael Jordan, you know, I want to be like Mike was a whole mm-hmm. ad campaign. Yeah. But it wasn't quite, as we said before, the 24 seven ubiquity of modern and, and the influencers today where now it's, so it's, it's the, um, they asked, they did a whole study about a year and a half ago where they asked high school students what their vocational aspirations were. And now the number one thing is to be a YouTuber. And so and they, they asked the same, they did the same study with, excuse my, uh, it was either China or Japan, mm-hmm. but their number one choice in high school kids was to be an astronaut, which used oh. to be a popular choice for oh, yeah. our kids. Yeah. And Astronauts for our kids was like down at the bottom. I forgot what number it was, but it was YouTubers, influencer. That's what's shaping our kids today. That's what they're aspiring towards. Mm. Remember 10 years ago, we, they used to criticize people who wanted it. I just want to be famous. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. now it's like, I want to be famous as a YouTuber. Mm-hmm. At least if you wanted to be famous as an actor, you had to kind of be an actor. Right. You, you had to get some training. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like go to school and you had to, practice a whole bunch and work your way up to the top right Right, now it's like you get one viral video and there you go you have a whole audience that's there for you and unfortunately they make the average influencer makes about twelve thousand dollars a year in the average youtuber so but they all look at mr beast and they look at you know exactly 20 million a year and it's like okay so that's the that's the lebron james of you know not everyone's going to be but that's the thing that is like, like I saw the one thing I saw in one of my twins was how many followers somebody had started shaping his, his, his value system. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, we'll watch old movies or we'll watch mm-hmm. stuff on, on YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. Like we'll watch like a singing in the rain or citizen Kane or something. And yeah. the first thing my kid asks is how many views does it have? Yeah. And I was like, look, if it's citizen Kane, I don't care if it has one or a hundred million, yeah. you don't base the value, but and my, he can't separate the two. So yeah. if, if it has 10 million views, it's good. Mm-hmm. But it has 100 views, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to like, you know, kind of, no, no. That's it's not your gauge. Right. That shouldn't be the mm-hmm. gauge of quality. Mm-hmm. That's the gauge of, you know, conformity or, mm-hmm. you know, sh- you know how popularity doesn't equal quality. Yeah. But, but, you know, and that was so, that one crept up on me. I hadn't realized until he kept asking, like, we would put a movie on and he would want to click back to see the number of views that it had. And I'm like, who cares? Yeah. Uh, we're about to watch this movie. And he was like, no, no, I, I need to know. And then you could tell. And I said, so if it only had five followers, no, then I, you know, it can't be good if it only had five followers or five yeah. views on it. <laughs> That's hilarious. I, You know, when we watch movies, we'll watch like, I don't know, wholesome movies or we'll pick a Christian film. And I can see their, how they act differently even like towards each other or how they think about things differently within the next like 24, 48 hours. Mm -hmm. And then they go back to normal. But we try to have those influences that are like, okay, you won't find this anywhere else. We're going to go somewhere random and watch this movie. And sort of funny story, we were watching this movie and we're like, wait, that's our street. They actually (laughs) filmed this movie right down the street from us. And they didn't, we remember because it was at their, right in front of where their daycare was at this lady's oh. house. And yeah, so it was like meant to be that we were supposed to be watching this this show. But, and it was about like being nice to your neighbors and your siblings. And afterwards, they actually were nice to each other for a little while. Same thing with that digital, I don't, I can't remember. You referenced a movie earlier and we made the kids watch it with us. The Social Dilemma? 
Yeah, yeah the social dilemma. Yeah. And they they were like, oh, wow, that thing, they know all this about me? Like, I will say kids, the kids that I work with tend to react when you challenge them that you're being manipulated because no teenager likes to be told what to do. And, you know, yeah. they want to be a ton. When you start saying, yeah, you're being played, you know, you're being manipulated, yeah. you almost kind of like push that button, especially on the males, right? Yeah. Sometimes when I work with 17, 18, 19-year-olds and I kind of push that male to male, like you're being played and manipulated they'll like i don't want to be played and then it's well then yeah. don't then don't you know then reown your life again become the yeah. protagonist in your own life rather than living vicariously through a video game or through some social media avatar but it's interesting that you said that the effect has a short shelf life when you watch something positive or wholesome and that's true in general i mean i know people looked at that after 9-11 you know i, I was yeah. you know, I'm a new yorker so post 9-11 New Yorkers got nice for, you know, six months to a year and then yeah. it, it faded, you yeah. know, and I think, I think unless you continuously reinforce it and I've noticed that with my kids and with mm-hmm. clients that I work with, it's, it's not going to be a one-time thing where you show them something all of a sudden, oh yeah, this will be a permanent lifestyle mm-hmm. change. You got, you have to kind of, I think, keep reinforcing. So I think what you're doing is great. And I think the lesson is it has to be kind of a, it's like going to the gym, right? You don't just yes. go to the gym. Once you have mm-hmm. to kind of maintain whatever you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. this is kind of similar. Rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I will post your links. We'll share the book and spread it. I will buy a copy. And I am just so grateful for you to share your decades of expertise with our audience. And you clearly know what you're doing. So I hope you write another book after this as we continue to shape our culture. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for really shining a light on this issue as well. And, and again, I'm grateful to, to have been asked on your show. And, and, and again, thank you. You're welcome. Everyone, please give us five stars on Dr. Kadaris's episode and buy the book, Digital Madness. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. We hope you got a lot out of it. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can stay up to date with our latest episodes. Also, you can find us on social media by searching Checkable Health. We look forward to seeing you again soon.